Growing up, I kind of prided myself on not going along with the crowd and being a bit of a rebel. Nothing serious. I'm a scientist after all. But just enough to have a sense of, I mean, I guess that's fine. Frankly, this is how I felt about space for quite some time, noting the irony that I work for an Earth and Space Science Society. I'm an ecologist, so I just didn't get why everyone loves space so much. And I was honestly always the first to say so. But then the total solar eclipse of 2017 happened. Entire swaths of the U.S., among other places, looked up together to share in the awe and the wonder of that moment. I wasn't even in the direct path, but it really affected me. And since then, I've tried to, frankly, lose some of my attitude about space. And realistically, other things. No one likes that guy. So while I'm still partial uh, of what we have here on planet Earth, I think space is pretty darn cool. Everyone has a story, even, or maybe especially, scientists. Science affects each and every one of us. Let's talk about it. From the American Geophysical Union, I'm Shane Hanlon, and this is Sci and Tell. All right, let's get into it. I'm going to bring in Nisha to introduce Dante in the episode. Hey, Nisha. Hey. So on this episode, we interviewed Dante Loretta. He's a professor of planetary science at the University of Arizona and also the principal investigator for NASA's OSIRIS-REx asteroid sample return mission. Dante's been working on this project since 2004, so he talked to us about the patience required for working in STEM and how it could be really rewarding at the end. Awesome. Thanks, Nisha. Our interviewer was Paul Molin. My name is Dante Loretta. I work at the University of Arizona. I am a Regents Professor of Planetary Science, and I have the honor of serving as the principal investigator for NASA's OSIRIS-REx asteroid sample return mission. So I'm a professor here, and I teach. So I teach classes in astrobiology. I teach classes in cosmochemistry, basically looking at how the solar system formed. Is there life elsewhere in the universe? Um, And I do a lot of scientific research to address those questions as well. Traditionally, I had focused on meteorites, which are chunks of rock that fall to the Earth from outer space. And they come from asteroids, so we can learn a lot about the geology of the solar system by studying those samples. But they're contaminated. They come through the atmosphere. Uh, There's a selection effect because only the strongest materials can survive that very violent event. And then a lot of the questions I'm interested in are related to the origin of life. And there's life all over the surface of the Earth. So as soon as a rock lands here, it pretty much gets colonized by by microbes from Earth. So hard to tell what is from where and whatnot. Yeah, the contamination obscures the signal from outer space. And so we decided to solve that problem by building a spacecraft and going to an asteroid and getting our own samples and spending a lot of effort to keep them clean. And what is the status on that project? Is it active? Is it finding? Has it returned? It is on its way back home with the samples safely tucked away inside a return capsule. So we arrived at asteroid Bennu in 2018. And we spent over a year mapping it to select the site to collect the sample from. We successfully collected the sample in October of 2020, and we left the asteroid in May of 2021. 
And what's your estimated return? The samples will return to Earth on September 24th, 2023. You know, a lot of these interviews we've done on, you know, with a lot of people on projects like yours, and we always joke about the patience it takes to be a scientist or be involved with NASA. Uh, I don't know what jobs I'm doing in September at this point. So uh, knowing I've that been far working out, on this. things. Yeah, I've been working on this program since 2004. So exciting to, and then it'll just kind of be rebeginning when you get all the data to. That's right. Yeah, the whole the whole point of the mission was to bring the sample home, and then there's a lot of science that we're going to do with that sample once it's in our laboratories. Not that we didn't do amazing science at the asteroid. We had some great cameras and spectrometers, and we mapped the asteroid in exquisite detail. And we've published many papers about that. But I'm in the business to get that sample. I'm a chemist basically by training and so i'm really looking forward to that final phase of the science campaign and what um as far as like volume how much material are you able to bring back we estimate about uh, a coke can size uh, full of sample from the surface of the asteroid cool so it'll be a uh, a high commodity a high value commodity yeah it's a billion dollar uh, cup of asteroid dirt I was really inspired in college when I applied and was accepted to a program called the NASA Space Grant Program, which is to provide undergraduate research experiences. And I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was in college. I was studying math, studying physics, studying Japanese and East Asian studies. I was kind of trying to figure out what kind of path I wanted to go down. And I saw in the school newspaper, this would have been 1992, uh, a giant full-page ad that said, work for NASA. And I was like, wow, man, if I could do that, then I would, be, I would really be doing something I think I would love. So I applied for it, and I got accepted to the program, and I was assigned to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And I, when I saw that, I was like, I didn't even know that was a job. Right. It's like there's actually people who get paid to sit around and think about, you know, contacting aliens and how would we find them and, and how would we communicate with them? Turns out that wasn't very popular with the U.S. Congress and that program got canceled uh, very quickly after that in 1993. But it, the inspiration stuck with me. I really wanted to understand, are we alone in the universe? Are there other planets that have life on them? And did that life evolve? And did that life evolve like it did here on Earth to the point where it could develop technology? And could we find it if we did a dedicated astronomical search for that kind of phenomena? So that those big questions have, are what have driven me uh, since that day. Do you remember having that question about life outside of our, our world before that? Or was that kind of a triggering moment? I was definitely thinking about things like that. I always considered myself an explorer. I was a backpacker. I did a lot of uh, backcountry camping and with, with some buddies. And we would definitely stare up at the night sky when you're out in those remote areas of wilderness and you get a clear sky view, just the beauty of the stars and to see the Milky Way galaxy and understand the motion of the planets. We were enthralled. So we were like, wow you know, how cool would it be to be exploring places like that? So after that first uh, stint at NASA for that program, what were your, what was kind of your career path from there? 
Well, I got advice very early on that studying the search for extraterrestrial intelligence was kind of a career-ending move. So I decided to focus on um, the formation of planets. I was like, well, if you want to understand if there's life, first you got to understand, do they have a planet to live on? And that was a legitimate area of investigation. So I went to graduate school at Washington University in St. Louis, and I started working on understanding the chemistry of the protoplanetary disk, which is the giant disk of gas and dust that was swirling around our young sun uh, inside all, which all the planets formed. So I wanted to understand what were the elements necessary for life and how did they get incorporated into planets and what was the likelihood of various planets across the solar system of having those key elements and we're talking about carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, phosphorus, uh, sulfur. And sulfur was the one that I focused on for my PhD thesis. And I did a lot of work experimentally proving how you incorporate sulfur into planets and what role that could play in planetary evolution. What keeps you going on that? You know, so you've so finding life out outside our world since you know looking you know, looking for that full-time or part-time since 1992, like what keeps that drive alive, that, that, that motivation alive? Well, it's an awesome question. <laughs> so it's, a, you know, amazing that I could actually develop a career to, to go seek answers to that kind of question. And it's been a lot of fun, uh, you know, to get involved in a NASA spacecraft mission, to be the leader of a program like this. Even though it's been a long time, the job has changed over that time period. I'm not always doing the same kind of thing. Um, in the early days, you're, you're talking to engineers. You're trying to explain the science and the measurements that you want to make in a way that they can go and build uh, the devices that, you're, that you need. Uh, so you do a lot of system engineering. You're looking at PowerPoint you know, diagrams of what the spacecraft's going to look like. And then you get all that settled and agreed on, and then you go into the build, and that was a really fun time period. We were, you know, it was built by Lockheed Martin in Littleton, Colorado. I got to go to the high bay, which is what they call the clean room, where they assemble these spacecraft on a regular basis and watch this amazing vehicle come together. Uh, it's a lot like a high-performance race car, right? It's just got to behave. It's got to perform uh, absolutely perfectly. You're putting it in through a very demanding environment. And it felt like that. I, I used to do a lot of uh, work on cars when I was a kid, a teenager. And so it kind of felt like being back in the shop, you know, seeing this amazing thing come together. And at the end, you know, you fire up that engine and you just get that feeling like, yes, we built this, we put this thing back together and you can just feel that roar. Uh, well, that was amplified a million times when that rocket took off from Cape Canaveral in 2016 with the spacecraft on board. But it was that same kind of feeling like we built this and now it's off to go do this job. It's on this amazing journey into deep space. I can't even imagine how exciting it's going to be as you get closer and closer to that return with those samples. Yeah, it's uh, it's two years out right now, so I don't try to get too excited about it because I know, as you mentioned, patience is a virtue in this business, so you got to be patient. Um, but we're having a lot of fun planning on what we're going to do once those samples are back on Earth. And I'm talking to laboratories all around the world that have specialized capabilities that we're lining up, how we're going to get them some sample and the kind of measurements that they're going to make and how we're going to roll all that up into understanding the formation of the solar system. 
When you look back at your career to this point, are there any um, failures, I guess, you know, think times that things didn't go quite as planned? Um, and, and how and when those things happen, how do you move on or readjust or refocus to to just not get so beat down by them? Absolutely. The NASA process for getting your mission funded is pretty arduous. So I mentioned I started on the program in 2004, and that was the first proposal. That was rejected, and uh, that was a blow. But it, you know, we knew we were new. We were just getting started. So we were like, okay, this is good. We got some feedback. Let's rewrite this. So you got to commit. It's another year to write another proposal. Uh, we wrote that one. That one made it into what NASA calls phase A. And I like to compare this process to the NCAA basketball tournament. So NASA puts out a, a call for proposals and says, we're going to pick a new mission to go somewhere in the solar system. And this is your opportunity to, to communicate to the agency what you think the research priorities should be. And then, so like a couple dozen teams will, uh, will enter that tournament. We'll tell NASA, we are interested. Here's our idea. And then you make it to the championship game, which is what NASA calls phase A. You get selected out of that big pool, and then you're in the finals. But there's a couple other teams, too, and NASA's only going to pick one of them. So you've got another year of detailed study. We made it to that championship game, and then we lost. And at that point, it was now 2007. I'd been writing this proposal for three years. And at, you're done, right? It's like NASA said, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to go fly to the moon. Uh, we're not interested in your asteroid this round. So that was probably one of the toughest moments because you're like, okay, we made it to the championship game and we lost. Uh, there's nothing quite like that feeling. But it was really strong. We felt like we almost got there. Like there was just a few things that we needed to fix and this would have won. So that was what kept us going. That and the fact that the team was really great. When we were working together, you just had this camaraderie. We were all united. We were you know, unified in our vision of what we needed to do. We were on a mission, right? And we had the common purpose. And that's a really special thing. When you get involved in a team and everything is clicking and everybody's you know, complimenting each other, thinking through problems together, uh, it, it's a really fun environment. So I was like, okay, I'll do this one more time. I said, I'll go back for a third shot. Uh, and then this is it, right? If NASA declines again, then I'm going to go think of something else I want to do because I don't want to spend a decade and have no effort to show for it. So we went into uh, the NASA New Frontiers program, which was a different program than we had competed in before. We were competing in Discovery. And New Frontiers had a bigger budget, which helped us solve a lot of the technical problems that we had on the spacecraft. And so we submitted that proposal in 2009. So now I've been working five years on the mission. Uh, we made phase A again. We made it back to the championship game in 2010. And then in 2011, we won. And NASA selected the mission and we were able to go. So it was seven years of proposal writing uh, to get to that stage. And there was a lot of uh, setbacks and then, unfortunately, the biggest setback occurred just four short months after we were selected. My mentor and, and the leader of the program at the time, Dr. Mike Drake, passed away. And uh, that was a huge emotional blow to me uh, and to the team because I was, I was young back then. And uh, he, was my, he hired me here onto the faculty at the University of Arizona, and he brought me onto that project. And to lose him and to know that all of a sudden now I was going to have to step up and lead this program was a really difficult time. 
just the doubt of could I do it? Was I ready? Uh, everybody was asking that, not just me. Uh, so, uh, right, I had to convince myself and then convince everybody else that, yeah, I could step up and take the reins of this program and lead it successfully. And then just losing your friend uh, that you'd worked side by side for seven years with, your mentor, or your father figure, uh, that was devastating. So it took, a, took me a long time to, to get over that. You know, it's one thing when we talk about the duration of these projects, like there, there probably are, it's probably not uncommon for personnel who are intimately involved at the beginning of projects, never, not to, you know, whether they retire or pass on or whatever it is, or move to different projects to not be involved, to see the fruits of that work. That, that's got to be kind of a difficult thing for the people who, you know, end up having to watch from a distance and also the people who are involved in the project all the way through. Yeah, I can say now, let me think, 2004 to 2021, 17 years I've been working on the program. Uh, I've seen everything, right? I've seen births and I've seen deaths and I've seen marriages and I've seen divorces. People have come onto the team and that's really exciting when you hire somebody. People have left the team and in goodwill. Um, but it's just been an enormous change and it's it's a big team. So you see a lot of things like that and you just... At first, it's hard, but then you just learn that's that's how life goes. And when you're working on a program for 20 years, you're going to see a lot of things. What advice do you give to young folks who are looking at the sciences as uh, you know as where to go to the next step in their education or even as a career? Yeah, for me, science is curiosity driven. So if you are curious, if you've got that passion, there's questions you want to answer or knowledge you want to seek, then you got to channel that and follow that and find people who will support you. I guarantee you when students come to me and they express that interest, I do everything I can to help them. Uh, and so we love to see that enthusiasm. So reach out. You know, send us an email, write us a letter saying, I saw, you know, a news article or I saw an interview and I was really inspired and I'd love to learn more. And I, I want to know about your educational opportunities or the pathway that you took to get there. So um, there is lots of ways to get involved in science. And I can tell you, we are desperately short on people who are trained in science and engineering and technology. And so there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of initiatives to recruit people into these fields. So there's scholarships, there's uh, fellowships, there's all, all kinds of support networks that are out there, mentoring programs. Uh, so follow your passion and, and we will help you. Do you think when you get those samples back in a couple of years, do you have a presumption of what you're going to find? Or is, it, is, is there potential for just like mind-blowing, didn't-see-this-coming type of uh, discovery? I would say both. So we have we had spectrometers that surveyed the asteroid uh, in the visible and infrared wavelengths, and those provide a fair bit of information about the composition of the surface. So we think we have a very wet asteroid uh, in the sense that the dominant mineralogy seems to be clays, and clay minerals have water inside their structure. Uh, and so that's really exciting for us because one of the things we want to know is how did Earth get its water and why is Earth a habitable planet? And we think these kinds of asteroids delivered that. So we're expecting a lot of clay minerals. We have seen uh, carbon on the surface in the spectral data, both in the form of organic molecules, which means that they're bound with hydrogen, and in minerals uh, called carbonates. So we expect that we have ad accurately characterized the surface of the asteroid. That said... 
Bennu, which is the target asteroid that we got the sample from, is a trickster. And it has done nothing but literally throw curveballs at us since we started studying it. Uh, so I expect that those surprises are going to continue. Bennu's got one last um, you know, shock for us when we get that sample. There's going to be something in there we weren't expecting, and that's what makes science really fun. How far has the... You know, in 1992, when you first kind of started getting exposed to NASA, I believe was the date you said, would we ever dreamed of landing a spacecraft on an asteroid? Like, how fast is that, te that technology evolving? Well, there were people thinking about asteroid sample return in the 1990s, so the concept wasn't new with us. There was other teams that had worked through the design. It was, it was achievable back then. It would have been a lot more challenging, but the technology... We actually, the spacecraft, the technology on the spacecraft is not cutting edge. It's very tr tried and true. Like the propulsion system is a monopropellant propulsion system, which has been used for 50 years. Uh, and so we were using very reliable hardware for the mission. The, the technology came in the software where we had to end up executing a pinpoint landing on the surface because the surface was so rugged and rocky, that was one of the big surprises. We didn't expect that based on the telescope data that we had been studying. And so we had to make the spacecraft smart and we had to put in some decision-making capability and an autonomous guidance system. So it could take pictures of the surface and it could figure out where it was relative where it needed to be and then make corrections to its trajectory to get there. And I don't know if that would have been possible in the 1990s. I think that this kind of, you know, autonomous guidance technology has come a long way since then. To me, it shows you what people can do when they cooperate and they work together and they unify on a common vision and a common goal. I mean, OSIRIS-REx required over a thousand people all over the world working dedicated to the mission success. And, you know, these are things that require huge teams and it requires that that you act as a team, and that you focus together on a mission. So I, I, I like that to be one of our key messages that we get out there. Humans are capable of amazing things uh, as long as we, we work together. Teamwork makes the dream work, and I want to thank Dante for talking to my amazing team, without whom Scientel wouldn't be possible. Special thanks to NASA for making this episode possible, to Nisha for producing, and to Paul Molin for conducting the interview. If you liked what you've heard, stay tuned for future episodes. You can subscribe to Scientel wherever you get your podcasts, and find us at Scientel, all spelled out, dot org. From these scientists in our respective home studios, to all of you out there in the world, thanks for listening to our stories. 